0: Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, we have Nick Roach. For those of you from Chicago, you might recognize this former Bears player, but there's so much more to Nick than what he accomplished on the field during his time in the NFL, I wanna take a moment to thank Nick for being so open during this conversation with regards to talking about his insecurities as well as a discussion around race. I'll be joined today by my guest co-host, Seth Kaplan. Nick, thank you again for taking the time to talk with us. Let's start at the beginning. What was life like for you growing up?
1: Was raised in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, right? Just a few minutes outside of downtown. uh, Single mom. My dad was sort of around, but my parents were divorced and he was he was with another woman. So I was raised with my mom, my older brother, who's 10 years older. And then later on, my little sister came. Uh, She's seven years younger than I am. And so pretty much the three of us grew up in you know, kind of your stereotypical, you know, what you see on TV as a bad neighborhood. A lot of gang violence, uh, you know, drugs and, and some shootings, you know every now and then was weren't, weren't strange things. But I think for us in our household, we always felt pretty safe honestly, because we were kind of friends with the block, as they say. And so none of the, the danger, the trouble really ever hit our house. Um, there's a time later when we had, uh, like a straight bullet come in the house, but everybody was kid, but then there was nothing intended at us, you know? And so hey,
2: can, I, can I stop you for a second there ahead. real quick now, Mallory and I didn't grow up in that same neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk almost nonchalantly about a stray bullet coming into your house and about the gang activity around as if it's, yeah, this is just how it's supposed to. Can you talk a little bit more about.
1: Yeah, man, you know, I don't know. um, That was all I knew growing up. And so I think it took a while. It took some years. I'm thinking, you know, when we were really outside playing and, you know, just being kids, eight, nine, 10 years old, it wasn't until then where I realized like, man, actually my friends are the ones kind of, the police are driving by looking slow at my friends, you know, they are the ones maybe doing some stuff that's questionable Um, or maybe it's their older brothers and their uncles and and parents that are into activities that are illegal or dangerous, you know? And so, you know, with kid eyes, it's hard to really tell um, that what you're going through may not be everybody's experience. And for that reason, you know, because our household felt pretty safe. There was nothing to that, that alarmed us, I guess, outside of just our friends, maybe struggling a little bit financially and things like that. So it was, it was our normal, for sure.
0: What was okay. school like for you? So, you know, you talk about growing up in this area, there was gangs, kind of drugs going on. Um, was school so like, was, did your mom make school a priority? Did you feel like yeah. you, that was the way to kind of get out?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So for my mom, it was the biggest deal because my mom, so I mentioned my older brother's 10 years old than I am. So my mom got pregnant with them when she was, before she was getting out of high school. And so for her education was super important, but you know, being a mom at 17, 18 years old, she was only able to get an associate's degree. And so, you know, with all her kids, it was pretty much, that was the non-negotiable of our lives. You know, like you guys can, pick, well, I'll pick your high school because <laughs> we had to go to private schools to get a, a better education, but you guys can pick any college you want to go to, but you're going to college and you're going to get a four-year uh, degree because, you know, she was a lady that I think like a lot of probably our, our elders experiences where she got the job that she could do that paid the bills, but she hated it for the whole time until she retired. Um, and thankfully she got to retire. So for sure, it was her big push where all of us, you know, went to attended schools. Got degrees, and were able to do something with it after.
0: Nick, they often say it takes a village to raise a child. You, however, were raised by a single mother. How do you think it shaped you, not only as a man and a husband, but also as a father now?
1: Yeah, that's a good point, man. You know, I feel like it was really a bit, it was a fundamental piece in building my whole personality out. And what I mean is, there was some years ago when my wife Anna Marie and I, we got some, we got like a free counseling lesson just to, you know, like a marriage tune up kind of thing. It was an hour long session with a, with the counselor. And he was just listening to us talk about a relationship. he's like, you know, seems like you actually have a lot of the female energy and your wife actually has a lot more <laughs> of the masculine traits, you know? And he's like, now don't be offended by that. Just understand it's an energy. It's a, you know, the, I guess, stereotypical, um, you know, tendencies of those genders. And so I like, well, obviously it makes sense because how I was raised, um, but I think it does, it fleshes you out more because, you know, I'm the one, for example, in our house today that I, I do all the kids' bath times. I cook all the dinners, you know, I do all the the things that my mom did for us. <laughs> and my, mo- my wife is the one that fixes everything. You know, she's the one planning everything. And so that, for that reason, we have five roaches crawling around at all times. Interesting because I remember early on when we first started having kids, I was talking to just some old friends and he's a father of four as well. And I remember telling them like, you know, I'm here. And this was like right after I got done playing. So I'm at home most of the time we have one baby. And I was like, man, I feel kind of extra because you know, I saw my mom with all three of us and it was just her and she was working. And I'm like, but well, my wife is here, you know, she's not working right now. She's got one baby and I'm here too. It was like, I felt like we were playing with extra players just because we were both in the house available, you know? So it was, it was a very strange thing.
2: Um, you're growing up in this, it, it sounds like a still loving household. You had a, absolutely a, a single mom loving household. You, you start playing sports.
1: Yeah. So my mom's big thing was so my older brother started working. He, he's, the most competitive of us by far my my sister and i ended up playing in college and if i guess if there was real more than the olympics for track she probably would have kept going on because she was a really good track athlete Um, but my brother is the most competitive and the least coordinated i'll say he's not the most in that way i'll put it um so he started working early in high school you know he started having a job working at the newspaper doing stuff like that and my mom's thing for us was, look, once we got of age, you you can get a job or you can play sports. But we always make fun of her for saying you you're not just gonna wear out my couch because she just wasn't about people sitting around, watching T V all day, you know, and not doing anything constructive. Especially if we we're sitting on that, you know, in our house in that neighborhood where we we're in, she's like, This is not gonna be fine. Where I'm I'm out at work all day and y'all just chilling here in the house. And so that was honestly what sparked it for me, man. I was not a big, I didn't grow up a real huge sports fan. Like I wasn't glued to TV. My mom's brothers and and her sister actually were all like D1 basketball athletes. And one of my uncles played overseas for a long time. So my family is a big sports family. I think for me and my little sister, because we were more the younger ones, it didn't the bug didn't catch us that way. So I pretty much started playing basketball out of not wanting to do a job.
2: So at what point did you go from basketball to football then?
1: So once I got into high school, uh, I played flag football just for fun, like in seventh and eighth grade. Excuse me. But when I got to high school and I saw the tackle, I was like, no way. You know, I broke my leg actually in eighth grade playing flag football. And so I'm like, I'm not trying to break nothing. And Those dudes are hitting each other. And so when I was a freshman, I was completely against tackle football and then my sophomore year came around and some of the coaches like you know the football coaches and even the principal at the school were like man just try it you know, you might think it's fun just go ahead and so i decided to give it a shot and so my sophomore year of high school was the first year i played tackle football and i realized at that moment what it felt like to play like a natural a game that was natural for you because i liked basketball and it was cool but i didn't really have a desire to I didn't play basketball, like, in my free time. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't like that.
0: So then when did you start to – because you didn't start playing until sophomore year. Um, right. I feel like most people who go to play football in college start way earlier, and, like, you know, I'm not sure exactly what the scouting period looks like, but you're kind of getting to that point where people are starting to think about college, but you're just starting. So how did you make that transition to being able to – get recruited by Northwestern.
1: So for me it was thankful, honestly, for people that knew knew better and had better long sight vision than I did. So my my coaches I really credit at the time, it was Lonnie, Lonnie Priest and Eric Janowski. They were just the head coach and the the coordinator for the varsity football team. And they were like, you know, this kid could probably play in college. Um and so what they started doing actually was contacting schools for me. So they started saying hey, you know, we got a guy that you might want to see. And they started sending out, you know, whatever a highlight tape looked like back in those days in, in the early two thousands. And yeah. so they actually were the ones that garnered the initial interest. And then, you know, slowly I would start getting letters and eventually got to the point my junior year uh, at the end, after my junior season, I had got an offer by Northern Illinois and, you know, you should have seen my mom's face. Like, <laughs> like, there's somebody wants to pay for your whole education, you know? And so it was huge. And then fast forward a, little, a few more months into my senior year, Northwestern came around and they they offered me. And those those ended up actually being my only two offers. And so, you know, from a kid that was not in it for the football per se, to get a free, an opportunity to go to Northwestern for free, was like, it was just a, the biggest no-brainer probably of, of my life. You know, um, so it really just snowballed out of their efforts to get me seen, and me having fun at the time, just as a high school kid.
2: So, when you got to Northwestern, was there a little bit of a culture shock? You're coming oh, from Mil- I- Milwaukee, and you know, quite a different neighborhood. I can't even MSC. tell you.
1: It was, yeah, I seen. I so it was it was, the cult the student body part wasn't as big of a shock because my private school and high school was more in the suburbs. And so I was used to being around maybe a more affluent population by that time, but the bigger culture shock was the football culture because high school football, I think anywhere high school football to colleges is is even a bigger jump than college to the NFL, you know. But from like my little world of like what I saw football as to go into like a Big Ten's practice and seeing how they they play, and I was like, these dudes are so serious. they're just cussing each other out. These dudes are fighting, you know, these coaches are screaming at these guys. And I was like, I was really, I remember being on the sideline. I think I went to visit a spring practice and I was just like, what am I doing? What did I say yes to? Um, so that took a, that was a big adjustment that probably took a, a good year <laughs> to get on pace with everybody
2: else. Can I ask then what, what drove you in, in football when you're, you know, you're having these kind of self doubts, um, you know, you you see people with whether it was higher ranking come out of high school or higher up on the depth chart. Something must have motivated you when you're in the weight room, when you're you know in the film room, and you're trying to push yourself to to beat these these guys, right? They're they yeah, teammates, but so you're trying to to mm-hmm. get up the depth chart and trying to play um, with that self doubt. What was what was pushing you?
1: You know, I was I was thinking about this recently, just uh, as it relates to other things, like I told you guys I was learning guitar. I think I told Mal the other day. Um, recently and I think what's always motivated me people giving me this you know I don't know it's kind of like I've I've become known amongst our friends for just learning new things and doing them well and I don't say that in a way of tooting my horn but just I think that the way that my mind processes it is when I'm picking up something that's in front of me I just want to feel comfortable doing it you know like I don't want it to approach it and feel stressed out it's hard I don't want to approach it and feel like I can't enjoy it so I think that I work really hard and really meticulous at things so that they can feel easy or so that they can not be so that they can be a source of of joy for me at the end of the day. And so I think when I approach football, you know, nobody wants to go and feel depressed and like go do the thing you have to do every day for multiple years and and dread it. And so I felt like, OK, I guess I just want to work at this until the point where I can enjoy it. Um, and so I think that that really pushed me. All along with, like I said, with my mom's motivation was, regardless of what happened on the football field or wherever, I had to get that degree. And so, you know, it doesn't take long for guys to get weeded out, even at football. Um, we talk about weeding out a lot, and you know, pre-med degrees and things like that. But yeah, <clears throat> you know, there are plenty of guys that start college football careers that can't finish because, you know, at some point they lose they lose that. And so not wanting to be one of those guys and wanting to feel good, like, you know, I didn't want to be on the field and be embarrassed. I couldn't tackle a guy or be in the weight room and ashamed that I can't lift this. So I would just lift harder. Um, I think that simplified approach ended up adding up.
0: In today's society with social media, it seems that there's a very clear line between those who have opportunities and those who do not have opportunities. Growing up, was there ever a moment for you where you thought that the odds were stacked against you or did you ever feel that the odds were actually stacked against you?
1: So, man, you know, I think that it's a great question. And I don't think that the have-not thing or the fatherless thing really hit me until actually until I got well beyond that situation. So I was in the NFL. Once I was in the NFL, um or really even a little bit when I was in college, when we were on scholarship and getting stipend checks that weren't like ridiculous, but you know, once I could see my mom being like, Hey, you know, you can pay for this thing. You know, I don't need to, to send you this money every you know, and like once I saw my mom trying to release me a little bit financially. Um, but definitely once I got to the NFL and my older brother ended up becoming a, a financial advisor and, and he was helping my mom out with some things we never felt the have not thing because my mom, we end up finding out just went into debt to, to not let us feel it. You know? So as kids, we always had what we wanted, but she was just charging everything, charging everything. Um, so once I got to the NFL and realized like, shoot, man, we didn't really have nothing at all. She just got caught in that cycle. Um, and then as far as the father thing is like, I didn't realize that I was without one or missing one until somebody stepped in and acted like one. Um, and I remember it was kind of like I was talking to this guy. He still is a mentor today and even more of like a friend now. But just I remember him starting to talk to me in a way and like tell me certain things about myself and what I was was able to do and like the things that just how I was like, you know, and what I was capable of. And then I remember being like, wait, a minute, like this is hitting like a different side of me. And I feel like it hasn't been poured into yet, you know? And I remember in those moments, I even told him, I was like, dude, you were like, I feel like you're my father right now. <laughs> and um, it caught caught him a little bit off guard too, but it started to sink into both of us. Like, wow, th- this is the relationship that we kind of developed. Uh, he was fathering me very directly and very overtly. And that was a fresh feeling for me just probably six, seven, eight years ago.
0: Nick, you know, you and I have had other conversations and you talked about that, like kind of self-doubt or questioning. And Mm -hmm. most people, like you start football kind of young and you ended up in the NFL, Um, but that was never your dream. I actually believe when I've asked you, like, what was your like dream job or what did you think you were going to be when you were older? You said a farmer, which is like so (laughs) different than like playing in the NFL. You were at Northwestern. When did you kind of start to feel like that might be a possibility to go pro?
1: So... At the time it was really a similar, it was almost like a, it was like a cycle that repeated. You know, the same way I got to the NF to college was really similar in terms of how it went down for me to get to the NFL. And what I mean is with the self-doubt thing, obviously it's hard to like like you don't have big dreams when you're like a self-doubter. You know, you just kinda you do what you got and you're pretty much satisfied satisfied with what's what's in the hand. But what started happening as my college career went on some of the coaches um, started saying like, Hey man, you might have a chance, you know, if you do XYZ or if we put you in XYZ position and try some things out on the field, you know, some scouts actually might come around. Seems like they might be interested. And so I noticed this pattern and this, again, was just a few years ago talking with that, that father figure, uh, mentor type that I mentioned, his name is Dave. I realized that I had this pattern of I would be in this like potential crossroads but it would take someone else telling me what they saw for me to believe that, you know, so I would have more confidence. I would have confidence in, you know, if somebody told me I can do it, then I would believe I could do it, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't just latch onto that desire myself out of my own, you know, intuitive uh, grasp. And so again, yeah, we just, our coaching staff started mentioning things that were possible. And so I stepped into it, believe in them. Um, And turned out where, yeah, I got ended up getting hurt at the end of my senior year, broke my leg. Um, So I couldn't play the last few games, but I still got an opportunity to be a free agent to the Chargers, um, you know, after the draft and everything. Again, literally just, yeah, go ahead.
2: Did, Did they reach out to you?
1: Yeah, so what happens usually is, like right after they draft everybody, there's seven rounds and I think 200 and however many guys, 60, 70 guys, right after that, the team's, you know all the guys that didn't get drafted. They were maybe close to or expecting to. Teams start calling those guys and saying, "Hey, you know we didn't have a spot to draft you, but you know for significantly less to nothing, we can ask you to come in and try out." Basically, uh, so there's not there's not really like the high bonuses. There's no guaranteed contracts in the free agent world like that. Undrafted, uh, we call ourselves eighth rounders proudly, and so yeah, I went to the Chargers, and thankfully, actually, to my agent he looked at all this, the data and was like, you know, the Chargers at that time were had a good amount of guys actually playing that didn't get drafted, like playing in games. And so he's like, you know, they really give a fair shot to undrafted guys. You know? And so, yeah, I went and just on the, on the belief of what others had told me and did, did my best.
0: What was that phone call like when you called your mom and was like, I'm on the team? Because this is someone uh-huh. who, you know – she didn't want you just sitting on the couch like, you just kind of started playing sports and you know kind of you're lucky where just the journey continued and for growing up where you said like you didn't realize how poor you were how much like debt your mom was going in to give you these opportunities and i know a lot of athletes the first thing is they want to give back to their parents like for sacrificing whatever it is time financial commitments whatever it is but to tell her like yeah i got that degree But more importantly, Mm. like, I'm at the most elite level. What was that Mm. call like?
1: So I think it's a great question. And it sounds, it even sounds kind of like crazy to talk about it because it doesn't, they don't add up. But I think for me, what keeps me going in those situations where I feel self-doubt about an accomplishment, if you can break it down into steps for me and just give me some smaller assignments. I feel like then then I can start to own it more. And so what comforted me when I got to the NFL was like look, you know, guys like I want to go to the pro bowl and I'm like I'm not going to go to I'm probably not going go to the pro bowl. But what I did know that if you call this play, my job is to run into that one guy as hard as I can. And that I could work with. You know, because I knew that that was one thing the only that was my only my assignment that was controllable for me, you know, and there were, there were certainly fun parts of football, you know, like the collisions was one of the most fun aspects for me. So, yeah. So I think that breaking down, it just, for me, it was like the big dream type vision casting stuff. Never. It just never came from my heart. You know, I didn't, it didn't really matter to me, honestly, if I went to the pro bowl, if I didn't feel good about the day when I went to work that day, you know, and so, yeah, I think breaking it down into those steps for me was big. Like, you know, your job as a linebacker right now is to get these guys lined up. You need to know where you go and tell them where to go. I'm like, okay, I can work with that. And, you know, you start, you start to learn and you get better and the coaches are like, okay, it's not about not making mistakes. Um, and th- it may be this way in you guys' professions too, but it's not about not making mistakes as much as it is not repeating the same mistake. And so it's just... Amplified. I think it's intensified in professional sports because nobody wants to lose ever. Um, But yeah, it's just so I started realizing okay, I can experiment about how to do my job. I just can't keep doing that thing. I got to do new, I got to make new mistakes. (laughs) Um, So yeah, simplifying it and not repeating mistakes made a a huge difference for me.
0: I would say the majority of your career was played on the Bears.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, What was that like?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, (laughs) <laughs> excuse me so it was awesome because you know thinking about it for me being from Milwaukee going to school at Northwestern and then I was only on I was only on the charges for like six months or so I came back here still my rookie year in 07 before Thanksgiving like the week before Thanksgiving and so I only spent a few months away and so I spent basically from 2003 to 2006 all my college years. And then 2007 with the Bears to 2012 with the Bears, you know, in the same like 90 mile radius. And so for my family, it was awesome for like almost 10 years straight. You know, they got to go to to all the home games that they wanted to go to and like friends from back home and just being in a familiar place. You know, I just always felt like I was at, at home, whether I, whether I was in Chicago or at, actually at my mom's house. And so it was, it was awesome. You know, I couldn't ask for more of a career the only other closer team would have been green bay and obviously the difference between like living a life in green bay and chicago is pretty different ends of the spectrum
0: nick it sounds like you and i are very similar in the sense where when we are intrigued by something we kind of dive all in we're committed we want to learn and we want to be the best at whatever that thing is um how did you weed your other interests into your life while you were playing in the NFL. And then my second question is how did you start to see what life was going to be like for you after football?
1: So man, it's it's a hard question. I think, I think if more people had the answer to that question, you'd see a lot better statistics and figures on, on how guys retire from all the sports. So it took a real, it took a long time. I'll put it this way for me to realize that my genuine interests were relevant for transition. And what I mean is like in, in school, I was an art major. I was a studio art major, you know, drawing, painting, photography, um, that whole creative side of life was the things that I really cared about, or at least they energized me. You know, they made me feel like I was living when I was doing those things. But when you're in a sport, I think where you're making a lot of money, most people's concern is how they can figure out another job where they can keep doing that or, you know, something for guys that are competitive. How can I stay so competitive? But like, for me, I wasn't super competitive just for the sake of beating someone else. And, you know, the things that made me most alive were spending time with my loved ones and, and being creative. And so it it took a long time until I met that guy, uh, Dave, who I was mentioning before. Who he's he he's a pastor. He pastored a church for uh, probably twenty some years in Southern California here in, in Santa Ana, called New Song. And then, as a pastor, he started he started to even redefine what success was for himself. And I think that's where we we merged our relationship was because you know he had a successful church that was growing and blowing up, but he felt like God asked him one day like what what is is this it is this what success is for you. And it shook him up so bad. He had to go off to, you know, like Thailand for a year and really like rebuild his definitions, his, his personal definitions. And so when we met, it was as he was coming out of his rebuilding period and I was going into one of mine. And so it was perfect alignment. It was back in 2012. It was actually Colin Kaepernick's first start. We met that day because he was doing the pregame chapel service. Um, So we met and just had like a really strong connection with him because I remember when he was preaching or just, you know, doing this 30 minute, do you guys know anything about pregame chapels? Like for sports teams where, yeah. So we play on Sunday. So they do, they offer a chapel service that's optional, but like, you know, half the team probably goes good amount of coaching staff, but it's literally just almost like an obligatory, you know, you're on the way four hours before kickoff, you're going to go to team dinner, get on the bus and go to the game. Um, but he comes in and he starts talking about whatever his lesson is or his messages. And I remember I started like crying. I started tearing up, but not from what he was saying, because I don't even to this day remember the words he was saying, but I just got more and more emotional as he kept sh- just kept going. And so at the end of the 30 minutes, I'm like fully can't see. I'm like my chest is, you know, full on crying. <clears throat> and mind you, I'm supposed to start that night on the strong side on like, I think it was Monday night football and we're trying to go to the playoffs in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, but so he sees me, you know, all the mess and he's like, Hey man, why don't you, why not you stick after and, and let us pray for you. And so he starts to, to pray for me. And in that moment with a couple of teammates there too, in our chaplain, he starts to tell me things like I was telling you guys about this, like self doubt, you know, like be willing to share your heart with people share your share what you have to say. and, at the time, I'm like, this dude just reached into all of my personal life without knowing me. And I think that is what showed me that there was something real. I didn't know this guy from anybody else, but the fact that he took the time to see me struggling with something and speak directly to what it what it was just made me want to stay, stay closer. And so that was probably November, December at the end of the year, 2012, but he came to Chicago to see some other folks and circle by our house Uh, later in the off season, like in February. And we spent some real like concentrated time really digging into, okay, like what is your story? And he has this really cool process really of listening to people's stories in a way where he's, he's listening to what you're saying, but he's seeing the patterns and, and through a, a prayer, like a spiritual understanding process, seeing, okay, how can this relate to, something that will make you alive like make you really feel like you're alive like you know one of the bible verses that i love in john it talks about like jesus is saying i come that you so so you can have life and have it to the fullest and like how to really tap into that uh was pretty much all his consultation was about it's like there's things about you that you can explore in a certain way that will give you that sense that you're getting closer and closer to being in your sweet spot um so that every day you wake up excited because you know that, you know, you're one relationship, you're one meeting, one thought away from your next best day. And so those were the moments, honestly, when I started to think about, okay, maybe the way that I am, maybe because I'm so different, maybe that is the good thing. not That's not what's holding me back from transition. Maybe it's because I'm so different that's going to give me my lane that I can easily walk into when I'm done, you know.
0: So after you had that experience and you've been working with him and, you start to explore yourself a little bit more and get a little yep. bit more vulnerable. Did that shift how you showed up as a team? Like, remember, because I know that yeah, you kind of always questioned yourself, like, even when you were starting for the Bears, do I belong mm-hmm. here? And you and I have had conversations where you're like, it really affected my relationships with my teammates.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So when I was on the Bears, you guys, I mean, you guys all know all the guys that I play with then when I was on the Bears, I came in, I was obviously the young guy. And because that team was together for so long because they kept winning and I was on defense and the defense was so, so stable. I was I stayed the young guy, even though I was there for six years. You know, we all just kept getting older and older, but I never really grew into into my, you know, in the dynamics of the team. I was still I was still the young guy. And so by the time I got done at Chicago, I was going to be going into my seventh season and my contract was up after that 2012 year and so my whole six years of being a vet and starting i still never felt like more than just a couple year guy you know in terms of my role uh in the locker dynamics but then my contract's up you know everybody gets fired i end up signing with oakland and it was literally like just went like this you know i went from being a seven-year guy that still had 10 people to look up to where in oakland 75% of the team had just got there in like the last, the previous year. And now a seven-year guy was one of the top five oldest guys in the locker room. And somebody that had played, even started for one whole year, was now one of the most experienced guys in the locker room. Um, And so the tables turned like literally in the the course of a couple months just through free agency. Um, So what made a big deal was I, I told you I met with this guy in February at our house and he started revealing or sharing with me really all these things that he just felt like were worth looking into. And the things like, you know, open your mouth, the self-doubt is not, it's not helping you. Um, you belong, you know, like you're there for a reason. When I got to Oakland, I realized, okay, now these guys can see like a a guy who is different culturally, maybe than, than what you'd expect from a football player, especially from a middle linebacker but he's okay with it. Like, how can I feel like that? Because I think what I realized when I got to Oakland was that there were a lot of guys struggling with the same things, but because of the facade you're taught to, that you need to hold, you can't ever tell anybody that you're not sure about how you're going to play, or you can't ever tell anybody that something actually does bother you and you're kind of nervous. Or um, And so I think that what I was able to bring into the locker room as a result of me and my, my friend Dave was just honestly about who I was and honesty about who I was but still doing my job at a high enough level to to compete with anybody else
2: so you seem like a pretty soft-spoken guy to me are you yelling at the <laughs> other players are you uh, I want to know because if, if you're yelling at me where to go I just want to be you know yeah right right you know, I'll be
1: honest man the guy the guy's gave me a lot of flack for not being loud enough um and it just is what it is. I don't I don't think I have a very projecting voice for some reason. It's like it's hard for me to get it out there. But I mean I had to be as loud as I had to be. If I even had to run up next to a guy and like scream in his ear hole in his helmet. Uh, but there are times for sure the stadium's just so loud I couldn't even hear my own words coming out. Just praying they could read my lips or something. That's why we had a lot of hand signals too though.
0: Let's pivot a little. And um, Nick, why don't you talk to us about how you met your wife and introduce the world to that family man that really does define you now after football.
1: So we had, um, we met actually Dave and Buster's. If you guys have been to San Diego, there's a Dave and Buster's right here underneath the the eight Creeway in Mission Valley. And I was just up there with some teammates, just hanging out in the middle of the day. And then, what happened was it turned out one of the other guys that was a free agent, a rookie that came in with me, had started had started dating one of the girls that Anna Marie went to school with. So she was in school at San Diego State. And, you know, we were just the guys, probably six, seven of us up there hanging out. Turns out he called this girl to come, like, meet us up there at Dave & Buster's. And then she happened to bring, you know, a couple of her friends with her. And so Anna Marie ended up being one of the girls that came with her best friend, like, from childhood. Um, and it was cool how it worked out. Like we were just sitting in a booth um, and when they came in, I didn't actually know they were going to be meeting up with us. So I was sitting there with two teammates um, and I like double take at this girl that walks in and mind you, this is, you know, my limited perspective, little kid from the inner city of Milwaukee. Okay. We only have black and white people in my childhood memory. You know, there's no like diversity, ethnic diversity. So we got black people, white people. That's it, especially in the hood. I see this girl walk in, and I'm like, she's super brown skin, but she looks Asian. You know, <laughs> her hair is like all the way down here. She's got, she had on a, like a, a tank top with some jeans, and she had Jordans on. I was like, my mind was like, Bing, Bing, like, what is going on right now? Um, and so I was just like, Yo, and speaking to the self doubt thing, I'm not the, I'm not the number getter, okay. If there's a girl that somebody wants to talk to, I'm just going to appreciate the beauty and let it pass. Okay. I'm not getting her number. But turns out, you know, they all greeted us because our homie knew the one friend. And we, we happened to be the booth that had two empty seats. And so her and her friend just ended up sitting next to us. And so we shared like a little lunch. But it was fun. It was just like a casual, you know, jokes and kicking it. And this is where the story, you kind of need her side to get the full version because there's a split in what actually happened. She says she didn't want to get, give me her number. But if that was really true, why at the end of the the interaction would I have gotten her number, you know? So there's like some details that probably need to be shared on her. But so anyway, I end up asking her for a phone number, um, but the slickest way possible. And this is how I know that, you know, I don't want to get super religious, but I believe the Holy spirit can talk to us because I I believe I got words that were not my words because I'm not anywhere near this cool. So I go, Hey, um, you know, maybe I can get your number. So like the next time that my guys go out, I can let you know and you can bring your girls and boom, immediately without hesitation. Yeah, no problem. That we never hung out as a group ever again.
0: So you guys like, I've been fortunate enough to spend time with you and your family and with Anna Marie and, you know, when you were here, I think you guys had, like, two kids with one on the way. And now Maybe. you're you're up to five. Um, and I think, like, the main point, one of the points of this podcast is to talk about diversity and inclusion and just kind of where we are as a society. And obviously, over the summer with Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and, you know, you talked about growing up, like, there was black or white. And then Anna Marie is Filipino. And so can you kind of talk a little bit and I know you're a hands-on dad about what it's like raising five mixed children in this world. Mm-hmm. And like, how do you and her as parents decide to talk to your children about that?
1: Yeah. So it's, first of all, it's, it's I got I say it's hard. I mean, every parenting generation has their challenges, you know, for the kids. I would say the hard thing for us is, You know, we obviously have our ideas of like like I'm black, Anna Marie's not black at all. She's white and Filipino. But then our kids, like our kids are things that we are not. You know, like my kids are part white and Filipino. And her she has black kids, you know, it's like so having like these kind of like this mixed up thing, we choose to elevate their concept of identity basically. Where and it's helpful too that the world is is mixing up the way it is. Like I saw some stats earlier about interracial babies being born it's like higher than ever and going to keep growing but so they see more and more kind of like ambiguously brown children and being people which is good but we basically elevate for them like you know people look a certain way and people have certain features but the only way that you can know the quality of a person is by by how they are inside you know what is their heart like um and so you know, everybody's beautiful. That they, As far as we teach them, everybody's beautiful. Um, everybody has is worth getting to know Has something to offer. And the only way you can know if someone's good or bad is by getting to know them. You know, you can't look at somebody and tell if they're going to be a hurtful person or if they're going to be, you know, somebody that you really love until you take the time to to just get to know them. Because we've even had comments from one of our sons. You know, he's five. And he's made a couple different comments about racial stuff where he's probably the, f- the fairest skin the one that was in here a while ago yeah, Gideon he's one of the fairest skinned kids that we have and so he looks at us like all around the room and he's like oh you know like my brother he said one day a couple weeks ago like how come uh, Marcus is black like one of the bad guys <clears throat> and me and my wife were like you know looking at each other trying not to freak him out to make him stop talking and so we just go like, well, what do you mean, son? And he's like, well, Marcus is really dark. Like the bad guys are the dark guys. And mind you, we are not a household that has like the news on 24-7 or, you know, watching maybe these types of movies where this could be super portrayed. And he's five years old. Yeah. And so in talking through it, though, somehow he had absorbed this concept that darker skin means you're the ones doing bad stuff. And lighter skin means the ones doing good stuff. So we were even at the park one day. I took all the kids to the park. And he comes over to me and he goes, you know, Daddy, it's good that me and uh, me and Ate, Ate means older sister in Tagalog and Filipino language. It's a good thing that me and Ate are here um, in case somebody wants to try to mess with you and Marcus. And he's saying like him and his sister are lighter skinned so they can like protect us, the darker ones. Um, and this is a five-year-old, a five-year-old mind, like fully churning. He goes to me in the summertime soon after the George Floyd stuff, a little bit more sad, he goes, daddy, what if, and I was just leaving the house to go work out. He goes, daddy, what if they, what if they want to get you and you don't get to come home? And I'm like, what do you mean, son? And he's like, well, what if they want to arrest you? And and then you don't get to come to come back home. And he starts, you know, having that little kid face that will break anybody. And it hurt a lot because just in those couple of days of seeing the news, you know, he knew that I was more maybe at risk than maybe his other aunts and uncles, you know, have coming into trouble just just because I was leaving in the street. Um, so the conversation is, is ongoing. I think it's a, this is going to be like a generational thing that they carry. But for us, like with our spiritual views, again, it's like in, I think our generation in general, like the, the millennials, plus especially Z's, like they're realizing that more there's more to life than what we can see. And especially there's more to life that we can access and use than we can actually see, you know? Um, so for them, it's easy to talk about like, you know, God doesn't care what people look like. You know, God is not, God made us different because there's beauty in, in seeing different things. Um, but that's why you have to get to know each one individually to really know who you're, who you're dealing with.
2: So have, have you talked to your kids they're so young, have, have you talked to them at all about how you grew up? They're, they're obviously having a different life than what you grew up with.
1: Mm-hmm. You know what? Not not so much yet. And not because we have been trying not to. It's just, um, I don't think it's come up a whole lot yet. Because they even their concept of money, we were actually doing some things for like Christmas the other day. So we stopped giving gr- gifts a couple of years ago as a family just because so many people got out of control. But this year for the kids, we wanted them, we always want them to know like there are people that are really struggling um so we got this world vision catalog like world vision you know they support kids all over the world with basic needs school you know clean water things like that so we had a catalog for christmas where you can order gifts um for kids and like communities. so you can get them like livestock and clothes like get bikes for girls so they don't get kidnapped on the way to school things like that Uh, so i think we've done we've tried to do things like that where they can just start to open up their vision about, you know, they can see how, try to raise them so they can see exactly how much they have in excess versus having them grow up longing for more and more and more. Like we really want them to know they have plenty. They have plenty, but there's people out there who don't even barely have anything.
0: How does faith play a role in not only your family life, but your overall journey?
1: Yeah. So great question. So for me, yeah, there was, I, I grew up in, like I said, the private schools in Milwaukee, um, mostly like kind of religious school. So I grew up in the Lutheran school context, but I would say that my faith now is, is probably more in spite of having grown up in that context because it's so, you know, I think for me there's like religion and then there's like a spiritual life, you know, sometimes they can match up and serve each other. But most of the time religion is like, unfortunately working against spiritual sensitivities. I'll say it that way. And so, um, it took some years until after I got in the NFL, really meeting Anna Marie was kind of re-sparked my desire to understand, like, who is this God dude that I heard people talking about when I was little? Um, and it was out of wanting to get married, but not wanting to get divorced. And so, like I was telling you guys, you know, my mom was, my mom and dad were divorced. And so I'm like, well, I can't really ask them. My my brother had a baby when he was 19 and was at this time completely against getting married. So I'm like, shoot, like, he's not NBA have any good advice for me. And um, I'm like, all right, well, let's go another generation up. And actually my grandma had my mom when she was 17 and gave her up for adoption. And so I'm like, that's probably not going to work out. And she, the guy that she was married to still is married to relationship. I would say is not really thriving. So I'm like, I am was getting to the point where I didn't even have any living family members to ask about a healthy marriage. And so I just remember like, well, they say God made marriage. And so, I guess I'll see what that means. And so I happened to get invited to this conference called Pro Athlete Outreach. And so our chaplain for the Bears invited a bunch of guys. It's like a weekend retreat. You know, it's like four four days to go to a hotel, only players and significant others. And pretty much just talk about all the basics of like what it looks like to take God seriously. And so the first conference, I happened to hear a guy named Tony Evans talking and he was talking about one of the Tom Psalms and just that idea, like, like blessed is the one who fears God. And he stopped and preached for like an hour on just what fear God means. And that it just, it, it pulled me in because at the end of the, the talk, he just goes, so with all that, do you think that you take God seriously with how you live your life? And I'm like, well, when you put it that way, no, <laughs> you know what I mean? And, um, so at the end of that conference, Henry and I actually both ended up getting pre-baptized. She grew up kind of like loosely Catholic, a lot of Filipinos, have, you know, Catholic roots. And but that was the thing—the moment when we really started our adult journeys to understanding who God is and like what is it, how does it affect my daily life, you know. So with that being said, I think that we've really we've tried to be leery of like, and I you know I don't want to say this in a negative way against religious rituals and but i'm just i just think that so many times there can be distractions i guess like i think god is so much more simplified than than it's than it's made out to be sometimes you know i don't think you have to do a whole bunch of you don't have to do a whole bunch you have to talk to them uh, if you want him. you can see the fruits of the relationship with them if you listen to them and so i think we try to to live it in its rawest form as we can, you know, being in community with people that can challenge us, that that we can help to really just to grow together, honestly. And so, but we were going to a church around the corner here, and we like it. We love the people, but for us, it's more about the relationships. Right? And it's and it's exciting too, because I think one of the the main reasons I was excited about the podcast, like when you ask that question, what do you want people to leave with? For me, it's understanding your uniqueness is, is your key to the life that you want. I think that most people are walking around with whether they are conscious of it or not, a desire to, to feel a certain way in their life. Meaning like they want to feel like their life is full. And then once that's come checked off, they want to feel like they're filling up the lives of others around them. And, and just in my experience and what I feel like I've seen that, Knowing who you are and allowing God to reveal it to you in this like really explorative relationship, like where he's like, hey, I made you this way. Why don't you come try this? Check it out. Hey, I made you this way. Why don't you come meet this person? Um, Come check him out. I think that like letting God reveal reveal his creation to us, like us, reveal us to ourselves is the road to the life that we're all looking for.
0: That's like a perfect segue into kind of what you're doing now post NFL post all of that is I know you're really involved in coaching like life coaching that you yourself kind of went through it to kind of get a little bit more um, rooted in who you are your relationship with God and just your overall outlook on life. But now you're kind of taking that on as a coach and wanting to really help people lead their best lives. Can you touch on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, for sure. So, got to the point, like I said, I met you know this guy Dave, and he, you know, changed my life so much with the way he was able to hear hear me out, but also guide me at the same time. And so, from that moment, after starting to live into some of those things, I wanted to also learn how to help people the same way. Yeah. And so, I pretty much followed him like around the world, essentially for the following the four years or so. And so I would just go places with him and see him do his work with leaders. He kind of, he specializes in like artists, business people, and usually community developers. And so I would just go, you know, he went to Korea one time to lead something for pastors, or he went to, he went to LA and, you know, we're doing things on Skid Row, but just seeing him, how he equips people to be free. You know, at the end of the day, we want to be like off and running, you know, you want to feel released in your life. And so spent years doing that and he offers some certifications through a lot of his processes too. So got as many of those as I could. And then a few years later, I started to realize that my niche was more like a one-on-one, you know, style, probably the the motherly thing, you know, loving people up. And so I got wind of a coaching certification that was going on, like an executive coaching certification. Um, And it was three day. It was only a three day commitment. Um, But it really changed my life. It was like, I saw it more as a life skill than a uh, professional skill. You know, it's really how do you listen to people and basically find the disconnect between what they're saying they would like to have and how they're talking to themselves about it. And so, yeah, went through that coaching process back in, it was three years ago now. And ever since then, you know, just been doing a couple of people at a time because they're usually three or six months. Uh, type commitments from the person, but really just helping people to unlock those things internally. And since the pandemic has been going on, actually since summer and we went full homeschool, I've kind of, I've paused it, um, you know, indefinitely, officially, I think, but up until that point, I was, I was really putting a lot of materials together, writing a lot, trying to describe my own personal, you know, takes on those things. But it's really something I still love. I just love hearing people, what they're saying. And if they want, you know, like seeing where is it lined up with where you're trying to go.
0: Nick, if you could tell me one thing that you would want to say to this country or the world, in fact, as it relates to growing up a young black male in this country, as well as being a father to kids who are both black and brown, what would that thing say? And What do you want tomorrow to look like in this country for your kids?
1: Right. So, I mean, I love the question. And the first thing that comes to mind, excuse me, for me is that we're all in this together. And I don't even, I say that to both sides, really. I mean, if you're going to, if I'm like a young black man and I'm talking to whoever else might potentially oppose that, I'm going to get everybody standing together and, and say this over everybody. You know, we are all in this together because I think one of the biggest things that holds us back as humans in general, and this is like from time since we've been on earth is not understanding how our interconnectedness is crucial to our collective thriving. You know, It's like, I was given this example one time of on a team, like we, we can think of ourselves as a team if we want to, but we really need to think of ourselves as one, as one body, even like it says in, in scripture, like it's one body. Cause teammates can be really close and teammates, you know, teams can do amazing things, but you're never going to be as devoted to a teammate as you are to your own body. For example, like my man, Brian, like like we just were talking about, he got hurt with his knee. And as much as that was a devastating blow to what we were trying to do collectively. And as much as, you know, That was, it was hard and he was in pain. Me, as another linebacker on the team, I could only go so far into his injury because it wasn't me. You know, he had to do the rehab. But when I flip the scenario and I make it about my body, then anything that's wrong with the body has to do with me. You know, my injury is my responsibility. I need to cure myself for me to be able to live my life. And I think that we see ourselves in too many different, we see ourselves coming from different places. When you've heard probably like the Gates family talk about this a lot. When one of the things about Melinda, when she started traveling was, she started realizing that the moms in the worst, most, the least equipped parts of the world, one of the exact same things that the moms want to live in the middle of San Francisco or Manhattan. They just want their family to have enough to be safe, to be happy, you know? And so I think that we've, you know, for whatever reason, for many reasons, we've separated our views, and like we think that this person wants this, and this person is only doing this because of this, and um, we have we have pre we have prejudged so many things about each other that we don't realize we're actually all in this together, and it will never look pretty until we get to the same page that the things I'm doing to you are hurting me just as much, if not more. Um, so that's what I'm saying.
2: All right, so we, uh, we we always ask the same three questions to our guests here. Yeah, let me and, my, uh, I wrote them down here. All right, uh, I'll, I'll start with the first one. You could pick a quote or a mantra uh, that you think defines you or that you live your life by. Uh, yep. What would it be?
1: So this is something I I love. It's from um, a guy named Erwin Irwin McManus. And he's a pastor, he's like a fashion designer, creative type of dude speaker. Um, out in L.A. And so this was from one of his books. But I think this sums up for me, if I'm thinking of like when I meet somebody or even with my kids, honestly, like if I can have them leave with this, this is like my dream scenario. So he says, one of the greatest gifts we can give others is to help them have new eyes with which they can see their own lives, their own selves and their own future. I think it sums it up, you know, like really helping people's perspectives giving hope to people's perspectives about what their life could be. So his name is Erwin McManus. He's at a church called Mosaic in, in LA and in a couple of different parts.
0: The second question we ask every guest is if you could relive any one day, what day would that be?
1: So this is kind of a boring answer, but I would say our wedding day and not. So we ended we actually had two wedding days and we got married at the courthouse, and actually in Waukegan, uh, right there. And then we had a bigger wedding about six months later, like more traditional style. But I would relive that first one, the one at the courthouse. Because it was such a rushed, like... Or not rushed. It was just like that excitement, you know, when you're doing something and you're so like, shoot, sure, this is actually how... It's like a roller coaster. Like, you don't really remember it until, you know, months later you look back and like, what the heck? It would be awesome to go back and really... I just remember... When we actually only have one picture, there was one thing I remember about the day where we were so like, "Are we really doing this?" Like, and we are by ourselves; we didn't even have a witness. The like security officer was our witness, you know, on the marriage license. We were in such a rush that we didn't even think about taking a picture. And the security guard was like, "Hey, you guys want a, You guys want a photo?" And we we're like, "No, oh, yeah, please, yeah." And so the only picture we have from that day was literally like a seventy-five percent blurry photo of us, uh, you know, like in front of the judge's bench or whatever. And, but I think that that picture perfectly sums up how the day feels too. Like it's really blurry, but it was awesome. And, you know, so I will redo that.
0: The final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, what song would that be?
1: So I love this song. Actually, I just heard it recently. You guys know Peter Cottontail? He's an artist from, uh, from Chicago. So I think it's his most recent album called Catch. He has a song called do your thing. And uh, it's just like an awesome, it's just an awesome song. You know, the message is great. Do your thing. It's kind of what we've been talking about. Be you, you know, we tell our kids what we want them to be when they grow up is themselves and have the courage to be that all the time, you know? And so it's just, it's just a good song, but it's, it's upbeat. You know, you can dance to it and, it's an awesome, like, first thing in the morning type of song.
0: Great. I'm going to go ahead and add that song to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify. So listeners can go ahead and check it out and hear your theme song featured on that playlist. Nick, thank yeah. you so much. Oh, thanks, um, guys. I thanks. think it's been a great conversation. I got to the, like, it showed our listeners, like, who you are and that cool. you know you don't want to judge kind of a book by its cover yes you played in the nfl you had a great career but there's so much more to you and i'm excited for our listeners to hear this episode because i think that you really teach people that it's okay to be a little bit uncomfortable in your skin but let's dive a little bit deeper and get to it because when you do get to that level and that understanding you then can be make the world such a better place by helping Mm. others get comfortable in like who they are and that's really what we want in a society
1: yeah no i love it i love it i love what you guys are doing so you know much much success to you guys as you go forward
0: so thank you so much and we look forward to having you back on the show at a later date